we're in a series right now called Practice Resurrection. That's kind of leading us up uh, to Easter. And Easter's next week, right? It's a big deal for us. Uh, just a little encouragement. Um, a lot of people, particularly in the South, go to church on Easter Sunday. Uh, and so this is a perfect opportunity for you to say to your neighbor, hey, I have a church that you could go to uh, and invite them and bring them. I would love to have a full house. I would love for us for the, this to be the first Sunday where we have to pull in extra chairs. Could, 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 could that be a pretty exciting goal of that we're going to pull in some extra chairs from the back? Um, we're not going to open up the balcony because I'm afraid it might fall or collapse. Uh, but we could pull in some folding chairs. Um, so we're, we're good. We're good in that regard. Um, so we're super excited about this. And we've been walking through kind of what does it mean for us to live in light of the resurrection? So if the resurrection is true, then what does that mean for my everyday life? Is this just like a, 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 a set of assumptions and beliefs that I need to like morally comprehend and understand? Is it just some facts that I need to, th to think about? Is it just like I made my one-time decision for Jesus and that's all I need to do? Or does this actually matter in our everyday life? And what does it look like for us to practice resurrection? And so we've been walking through the Gospels and looking at the post-resurrection stories of Jesus and asking, what did this mean for his followers and what does it mean for us? And so what we've been doing is looking at all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looking at it almost like it's a four-camera shoot of the same event, right? Almost like it's if uh, four different people are recalling the same thing and telling the stories. And so we've been looking at all of the Gospels together and saying, all right, what do we learn from Mark? What do we learn from John? What do we learn from Luke? And, and kind of just walking through that and, and discerning what is it that we can learn. And so today, I want to talk about the idea that there are no professionals in the resurrection. And that may seem like a, a, a duh kind of thing, or, or that may seem like that's not that big of a deal, but it really is a big deal. So this is my favorite time of year. Um, other than the 75 degrees yesterday and 40 degrees today, uh, <laughs> other than that kind of dynamic, this is my favorite time of year. You know why? March Madness. Anybody with me? The, ter the tournament has been bad this year, I'm going to say. It's, not, it's lost some of its luster because Loyal Chicago is ruining it for everybody. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's lost some of its luster for me because none of my teams are in it. So what happens is when my teams get out, I just root for the bad guys to lose, right? And the bad guys are always Kentucky and Duke, just so we know, right? Those are always <laughs> the bad guys, right? Uh, so we're always cheering. When, when Duke and Kentucky loses, humanity wins, right? That's, that's the truth. So that's what we're cheering for. That's what we're going for here the rest of the way. And, but but I love this time of year. I'm a basketball guy. I coached high school basketball for like 15 years. I played basketball. Basketball is just my thing. Like I, I just love it. I enjoy it. Um, about a year ago, our family was doing like a prayer night. Uh, and not like, it wasn't like an organized prayer night. But we were just praying together. And we were, we were just naming what we were super thankful for. And, uh, and it was one of those nights where the kids were like being really spiritual. It doesn't happen very often. But this night, the kids were being really great. And, and like... Claire was talking about how thankful she was for mommy and how great mommy is and what a great mommy she is and how thankful she is to have a mommy. And, and the boys were talking about, actually, this is, I promise you, the boys actually said this at one point in their life. They were thankful for each other. <laughs> for a 13-year-old and 15-year-old to say that, like that's the presence of God falling <laughs> on the house. Right? It's a miracle moment in that moment. And it got to me, and, and Sarah said something about me, like she was thankful for me, and it was this real kind of sweet family time, and it got to me, and I had this like decision in my mind because it was March when we were having this conversation. <laughs> and so I could like go along with the family, and I could lie and pretend like I was thankful for them. 
and try and be holy, right? I am thankful for them, but not at that moment I wasn't, right? <laughs> or I could be honest. And so I looked at Sarah, because she's the one that gives me permission to say things like this. And I said, Can I, am I allowed, to, like, is this the safe place? Am I allowed to be honest with what I'm thankful for? I am thankful for basketball. <laughs> I'm thankful that today there's like five games on and I can sit on the back porch and just watch games. That's what I was thankful for that day. Like I could rest and sit there and, and watch a game and drink a soda, right? And, and, and hang out. Like I was thrilled about that in that moment, right? I was so excited that that was what was ahead of me that day. And I was ready for that. And so uh, it's, it's a big deal for me. I coached high school ball for many, many years. And, and, and here's the thing. When what we love to do is we love to second guess the professionals, Right? They're actually like ESPN is a 24-hour news network whose job is simply to second-guess coaches. Right? That we love to like this time of year, we love to talk about, well, I wish you would have called that timeout sooner. I wish you would have substituted this guy at this time. I wish you would have gone to the full press sooner. I don't understand why he didn't foul when they were down three instead of letting him shoot that shot when he hit it and we could have sent him to the line. Like there's all these different decisions that happen in, 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 in the journey of a game and we as fans, we love to second guess it, right? We love to play armchair quarterback. We love to sit back and say, well, you know, we, if we would have done this, we would have won. If we would have done this, we would have, you know, if we would have, you know, all these different things that we could come up with. We love to do that. There's radio networks committed to it. There's sports radio, there's sports TV, all of these different things. And I love to do that too. And I was a coach, so I, I kind of get some of it sometimes. And I'm like, why aren't they doing this? Why didn't they do this? And I don't know their team. I don't know what the dynamics are going on, but I love to pretend like I'm smarter than the professionals. You with me? Anybody else with me? Men in the room, some of you? Okay, I heard a couple mm-hmms. Um, when I coached high school basketball, what I realized was we don't just do this with like college teams, or, uh, but we love to do this when our kids are on the team as well. And the complaint that we usually have at that time is, why is my kid not dot, dot, dot? Why is my kid not playing more? Why is my kid not? And we love to second guess the coach about what they're doing with my kid, uh, right? Why is my kid not the center of attention? Why is my kid not getting more shots up? Why is my kid sitting out? What's going on with my kid? All of those things. And so we had one season and I was coaching and, and I was coaching with a veteran coach who'd been around for a really long time and the parents were just out of control. Uh, they were just really complaining. We weren't doing as well as we thought we were going to do that year. Everybody was disappointed. Um, and there was just like rumbling all the time. And so he gathered all the parents together. And it wasn't all the parents. It was like three or four parents who were really rowdy. They were the, they were the rowdy ones. Uh, and he just kind of sat down with everybody and he said, okay, listen, I know that you all think that you know how to coach because you've watched some games on TV. But I've been doing this for 25 years. Like, I, I've won state championships. Like, I, I know what I'm doing here. And one of the dads got up and was like, well, I just need to know why you did this and why you did that and why you did that. And he looked at the guy, and this is where, like, I loved this moment, but it, it probably wasn't the best leadership, right? There's sometimes when you wish you could say things, um, they would be like, man, it would be really fun to say that, but you shouldn't say that because to say it, it makes you a bad leader. You guys know what I'm talking about? Or makes you a bad Christian, right? There's these times when you want to say something and you want to get it out there, but it's just, you can't, you can't say it. Well, this coach decided to go for it today. Uh, and he said, okay, tell me this. What defense was the team we were playing, playing on Friday night? And the guy said, I don't know. I, I, I think it was a zone. And he was like, yeah, it was a 1-3-1 zone. 
what presses were they bouncing out in and out of? And he was like, well, I think they were doing a zone press. And he was like, nope, it was a man-to-man press that fell back into a 1-3-1 zone. And he was like, so tell me, how do you attack a 1-3-1 zone? And all the parents in the room were like, well, you pass. <laughs> you, you pass. He was like, no, you, you attack a 1-3-1 zone with an odd, you talk an odd man front with an even man set. That's what you do. And he started like talking all this coach speak and all of a sudden everybody in the room was like, I don't know as much as this guy. I'm going to be quiet now. And so what he did was he kind of did this like shame and guilt kind of thing. Like, I know more than you. I'm the professional. You're not the professional. And so stay in your place. You stay in your lane. I'll stay in mine. I'll do the coaching. You do the clapping. That, that's kind of what he did, right? That's kind of what, and, and in my mind, I was kind of going, yes. But I was also thinking like, man, he, I, I'm not sure he just made a bunch of friends in this moment. The same thing is true with how we can run the church. The church can be run exactly the same way, where there are professionals. There are people who have maybe been to Bible college, uh, who have some training in the Bible, who, who, who kind of know some stuff about Leviticus, which really, there's not a lot that's practical in there, right? Uh, and who kind of understand these kinds of things. And, and then there's a bunch of people out there who love to play kind of armchair court, like, why aren't we doing this? I wish we would do this. Why aren't we, you know, why did we renovate the sanctuary instead of the bathrooms, right? The bathrooms are really crummy. Like, why did, we, you know, there's lots, there's all kinds of different things. Now, I want you to know, this doesn't happen very often here which tells us something about what's been going on in our community, is this is not a place where there's a bunch of armchair quarterbacks. But what sometimes seems to happen is there's this differentiation that doesn't exist in Scripture between the professionals and the laity. Have you ever heard that word? I have people come to me all the time, and they'll say things like, I know I'm just a lay person. Or I know I'm just an average attender. But... And, and what, what's happened is somewhere along the line, we have created two classes of citizens in the kingdom. There are the professionals and there are the non-professionals. And I want you to know that this distinction exists nowhere in Scripture. And so what happens often is sometimes people get fired up about something. Sometimes people have their pet project. Sometimes people have their thing that they're very excited about and they bring that to the church and, and it plays out very similar to what this coach did. The pastor then kind of says, well, listen, I have actually studied Leviticus, right? I actually know a little more about this. I actually have, have you seen the degrees on my wall? I've actually done this, this, and this. And so stay in your lane, And I want you to know that that is so, so broken and dysfunctional. I think one of the most dangerous words in church culture right now is laity. I think it's one of the most dangerous and prevalent beliefs that exist in the church today that damage us. Because what it does is it allows us to sit back and say it's somebody else's responsibility. It allows us to sit back and play armchair quarterback. It allows us to sit back and consume and receive the good stuff that's coming from the church, but never contribute. And it's incredibly, incredibly dangerous. Eugene Peterson says it's the most dangerous practice in the church today. He said it's the greatest scheme of the devil in the American church. Because I really believe the greatest danger the American church faces is consumerism. The greatest danger that we face is that we come every single Sunday so that we can consume spiritual goods and products. And so we evaluate, like, I don't know, I didn't really like that song that Tyler played today. I wish you would have played that other one. 
That other one makes me tap my feet, and this one kind of made me a little sad. <laughs> we, we evaluate it like, oh, the speakers kind of buzzed a couple times today during the worship. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to that place anymore. <laughs> the kids program, and they're doing one camp, but I sure wish they'd do two weeks of camp. And what we're doing is we're just becoming consumers. It's the same way I treat Walmart. The same way I treat Krispy Kreme. I go to Krispy Kreme every Sunday before church with my boys. And they take a really long time in the drive-thru. And this morning I thought, maybe I'm going to Dunkin' Donuts next week. What's up now? <laughs> right? We treat the church in the same way. We, we, we've been taught or we've heard that that's the practice. And, and I know that the laity piece, I know it's a churchy word, and I know that we don't often talk like that, but the phrase, I'm just a lay person, is incredibly damaging to the church. Peter says this. He, or he says that, that we are the priesthood of all believers, which means this. It means the moment that we become followers of Jesus, all of us are the professionals, it means all of us are the priests. He says it over and over and over again. We're the priesthood of all nations. We're a whole, of all believers. We're a holy nation. All of us are missionaries. All of us are called to serve. All of us are called to go. And what we can do is we can create a culture that says, I'm going to depend on the one that's ordained. I'm going to pretend, I'm going to depend on the one that has a seminary degree. I'm going to depend on what I receive on Sunday mornings. And if I'm not receiving the stuff that I want to receive, I'm going to go down to the church down the street and I'm going to receive it there. I'm going to be really honest with you, and this may be too abrupt, and it may be too strong, and some of you, you can go, there's churches down the street, right? <laughs> if somebody who is 50 years old, 60 years old, comes to me and says, I'm not being fed, and they've walked with Jesus for 30 years, you know what my response is going to be to them? You're not a child. You don't need to be fed anymore. Now, if you're a baby Christian and you're new to the faith, and you just accepted Jesus, and you need to learn the doctrine and theology and beliefs and Bible and all those things, we're happy to feed you. If you've been walking with Jesus your whole life, and you're still depending on somebody to spoon feed you, I think the Bible says some things about that. It's, it's time for us to learn that this belongs to all of us. It belongs to every single one of us. The church is all of us. This has huge implications for the way we lead, the way that we work. Um, Eugene Peterson says the, the word layperson is the devil's best trick because it builds a system that allows 5% of the people to do 95% of the work that exists in the church. And that's why around here we, we, we've changed some things up a little bit. The way we talk about church is a little different. We use the word partnership versus membership. And I know that seems like semantics, um, but it's a big deal for us. Because when you join our church, when you become a part of our family, and we're doing Encounter Grace after church, and we're gathering together over here for lunch, and if you're new to the church and want to find out more, we'd love to meet with you and hang out with you. But if you're interested in that, we use the word partnership because partnership says, listen, there's a community out here that needs Jesus. And here's how we partner together to reach the community. This is what the church will do. This is what we need you to do. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And so all of these things kind of exist. So in, in every area of my life, what I've learned is that I need professional help. Anybody with me? Um, it's really funny, the, the kind of journey we have into consumerism as Americans, where if you look back 50 or 60 years, there are so many things we used to do on our own that now we can't function on our own without paying somebody else to do it. Does that make sense? 
And we don't often think about this. We don't often understand the implications of this. But it's this consumerism that matters for the way that we live. So um, my lawn, I, I decided last year, I'm going to take care of my own lawn. Um, it's a big challenge for me, right? I am not um, what you would call uh, manly. Uh, and so, like, having to fix things, repair things, make things look nice, that's not, that's not one of my greatest strengths. I like to sit on the couch and watch basketball. Uh, and so I decided I was going to take responsibility for my own lawn. And we've got, like, it's all these things that the people before us planted and all these, like, like rose bushes that are now, like, falling over because ice was on them. And, and I still haven't repaired that from when we had ice back in the day. Like, there's all these different things. There's these plants that I'm like, I don't even know what this plant is. I've never lived in the South before. This looks like a flower. Uh, I'm not sure how you take care of this or what you do with it. Like, all these different things. And what I'm realizing is the guy's yard down the street who pays the guy looks super good. And so I say to my neighbor, like, what do you do with your lawn? And he's like, oh, I just pay this guy. And I'm like, give me his number, right? <laughs> we do the same thing. I, I just got a new computer this week. And, and I was great with like following the instructions to get it turned on. I actually figured out how to connect it to Wi-Fi, guys. These are big accomplishments for me, right? I, I, I figured out how to like get my own coding in there. I get my Apple account, all those things. But then it came to the part where I had to transfer everything from my old computer onto my new computer. I have no idea what I'm doing. No idea how to accomplish that. No idea how to do that. I read the instructions. I went to the help page. I did all these different things. I tried to do it like three times and it just shut down and was like, I hate you, Ben. That was actually what it said on the screen. I hate you, Ben. So I'm like, I just got to pay somebody to do this with my computer, right? Uh, I'm thinking about uh, our finances, right? TurboTax is great, but I'm a pastor, and there's all these complicated tax rules for ministers and all these complicated kind of things. I'm like, I got to pay a professional to do this. And we got the bill from our accountant this week, and I wasn't thrilled with it, right? There, there's all these things that we just say, I'm going to do it. Our car. Remember when we used to fix our cars ourselves? I don't because I've never done that, right? <laughs> but, but there was a day when we would actually fix our cars. Or you know this crazy thing that used to happen in the olden days? We would ask other people to help us with things. We would look at our neighbor and say, hey, you can fix cars. Can you help me with this? And I'm good at computers, and I can help you. Unfortunately, my only skills are preaching and coaching basketball, which not a lot of people are like, hey, could you come over to my house and preach a sermon for me tonight? Or, <laughs> or, or could you work on my jump shot with me in the yard? Like, nobody's asking me for those kinds of things. I just need a better skill set. But there used to be this thing where we would just trade, right? We would just say, you're good at this. I'm good at this. How, how can we help each other? How can we serve each other? I was reading an article this week that talked about how in the olden days, days, we used to get together in a house and people would just sing songs. Can you imagine how weird that is these days? Like whoever comes to your house and just starts singing, you would all look at them like, Who, why is Julie Andrews in my house? Like why, what is going on? Like, but there used to be, like we didn't depend on Katy Perry to sing our songs for us. We could actually, there wasn't a professional that we had to sing. We'd just get together and we'd sing and it would be fun. We would enjoy it, not because we were perfect at it, but just because we could do it. Peter Block is a, is a researcher from Cincinnati, and he's done extensive research on how community works. And, and he says this, he says that what we want to do in our culture is we want to be able to buy and sell everything. We want everything to be a consumer good that I can purchase, that I can have a solution for at my hands, and we want everything to be fast, quick, and downloadable. So if I have a problem, I want there to be a phone number that I can call to solve this problem in the next seven days. Are you with me? 
We've learned this, right? And if it takes longer than seven days, what's going on, right? What's happening? This isn't fast enough. Their customer service isn't good enough. All of those things. And the second thing that we do, he says, is that we romanticize leadership. We romanticize leadership, which means we love the habit of dependency because when there is a leader, then there's somebody to blame. When there is a leader, it's not my fault if things go wrong. I can point to the leader. If things are falling apart in our schools, you know what we do? We get mad at the principal. We get mad at the teachers. You know what they used to do back in the olden days? Back in the good old days? They used to actually help. They used to actually say, how can I be a part of the solution to solve the problems that are going on in our school system? They used to say, how can I fix this? What we've done is we've learned to blame others for things that are our responsibility. We are a blaming culture. We're a victimization culture. If we allow something that happens outside of ourselves to blame them and then we become the victim and when we're the victim, we don't have to take responsibility. But when we start to understand community as we are in this together, this is our thing. Those are our schools down the street, guys. This is our church. It's not Ben's church. It's not Melissa's church. It's not Tyler's church. It's not Silvana's church. It's not Meredith's church. It's, it's our church. And you know who it's run by? It's not run by me. It's not run by Melissa. It's not, well, it kind of is run by Melissa. But it's, it, it's run by the Holy Spirit. If there was a hierarchy chart of who runs the church at Grace Marietta, Jesus is at the top. And what we do is we pray and we seek him and we do the very best we can to follow him. But it's not that we just wait on somebody to tell us what to do. In a consumer culture where there is a leader at the top, we wait for that leader to tell us what to do. And when that leader tells us what to do, we either choose I'm going to do that or I'm not going to do that. But when the Holy Spirit leads the church, we start to understand that God is leading all of us. See, there's a, lot of, there's a way to lead the church where the pastor stands up in front of you and says, I have a vision. And here's my vision for the church. We're going to do this, this, and this in the next three years. And everybody get excited about my vision. Come on. And most pastors are really good at getting people excited about their vision. I promise you, I can get you excited about some visions that I have. But what if we flip the script on that? What if we started to say, you have a vision? What if we started to say, God is working in your life. He's calling you to certain things. He's gifted you to, for specific ministries. He breaks your heart for certain areas of our community. And what if the church became an equipping place where we equip dreams rather than a calling place where we called people to our vision. Calling people to one person's vision is short-sighted. Calling people to one person's vision is the definition of, of, of bottlenecking leadership. What if we were about unleashing vision? You know, what our, you know what our vision statement is around here? We want to awaken kingdom dreams. That's what we want to do. Because I, I may be crazy, and I may, I, may be, I may be ridiculous, and I may be funny for believing all this stuff, but you know what I actually believe? I actually believe that God is calling every single person in this room to something. I believe that God has placed ministry on every single person in this room's heart. And I don't want to bottleneck that by saying, I got a dream. 
I want to say, how can we come alongside you and make those dreams come true? You want to start a ministry in your neighborhood? How can the church serve you? You want to start a ministry to, to, to kids that are hurting or kids that are at risk? How can we come alongside you? You want to start a ministry for, you know, wherever? What, well, think about what breaks your heart. Think about what causes you to action. What, what's that commercial that you watch on TV that brings you to tears, right? If you're crying over commercials, God might be stirring something in you, right? There might be something that's happening. There's something that God is working and moving in. And so how do we as the church come alongside of you? Peter Block says this. He says, if, he says the way we currently gather has no transformational power if we do not shift the context under which we gather and do not change our methodology of our gatherings, then we will have to keep waiting for great leaders and we will never step up to power and accountability that is within our grasps. If we keep waiting on the leader to tell us what to do, then I never have to take responsibility for my own life. There is actually a way to live in our faith where we are not spiritually formed in the way that the Holy Spirit wants us to be spiritually formed. We're just spiritually formed in the pastor's faith. We actually adopt the faith of the leader that we're following rather than being called to our own. And we're like, I'm so thankful that my pastor goes to Belize every summer and does a missions trip. Because I don't want to do that, but I'm happy to give him $50 so he can go to his trip. Rather than, Lord, where are you calling me? What trip are you inviting me to? What people are you calling me to love and to serve and to care for? Where am I supposed to go? Eugene Peterson, who, by the way, is, if you guys have not read Eugene Peterson, I quote him every single week. Uh, he's like, some people get like... Uh, like man crushes on like athletes or bands. Mine's like old theologians, right? That's me. Like if I met Eugene Peterson, I would be like a teenage girl, nervous, sweaty. Um, anyway, I'm a complete nerd. That's what I'm saying. Here's what, here's what Eugene Peterson says. He says, this is a perfect setup for the devil. If I can be convinced that the lay person designates who I am and not just what I know or what I can do, then I'm a wide open market for experts who are ready to tell me how to live my life and in some cases even live my life for me. Because God is the core of who I am and I do and what I do and there is far more to God than I can ever learn and deeper mysteries in the working of God than I can ever figure out but I'm quite willing to employ an expert to take care of all those matters for me. So what I do is I end up delegating the operations of my soul to the experts. I no longer deal with God myself because I'm just a lay person after all. I still, of course, engage in the usual range of God-related activities and retain a considerable vocabulary of God-referencing words and phrases to which the experts guide me in. I'm quite happy to be enlisted in God projects and often pleased to be recruited to play my part in contributing and helping the trained and the certified professional, but always with a self-deprecating awareness that the pastors and professors are my superiors in these matters. And he says this, which is so huge. Following Jesus gives way to following Jesus experts. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. We don't understand how much consumerism and individualism has infected our culture. We don't understand how deeply ingrained it is to how we think about what we're supposed to do and how we actually show up and, and what this means. So um, I know that all of you are sitting here thinking like, okay, Ben, that's Long, good rant, right? Way to get excited about something. Uh, way to yell at us for a few minutes. But what does this mean for what we're talking about? So if we're going to practice resurrection, what that means 
is all of us practice. And I'm not talking about practice like the way my son practices basketball, like let's get outside and let's work on our resurrection jump shots, right? I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in practice like, like I practice law. I'm a doctor who runs my own practice. We practice this together. We engage in a life that is permeated with the presence and companionship of the resurrected Jesus. We trust that he's working. And if we're going to be the church, then we have to be practitioners of the resurrection. We have to actually work it out. We have to figure out what this looks like. So let's look at these resurrection passages. Um, I've spent too long on the intro. Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Here's what it says. And the 11 disciples went to Galilee. This is after Jesus' resurrection. He's telling the disciples who they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, and he's helping them to understand I, your leader, am going away, which means you've got to figure it out now, which I would suggest is what the greatest leaders do. Good leaders can get results when they're in the room. Good leaders can get results when they're present. Great leaders get results when they're nowhere to be found. Great leaders get results when they're in a different state and great things are still happening because of what's happening. That's what happens. We want to create a culture where we raise up leaders who can do the things that we do. That's what Jesus did. He spent his life developing these men so that they could do the things that he did so that when he left, they could step into leadership. Right? That's what great leaders do. So it says, The eleven disciples went to Galilee to a mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Um, which is pretty funny to me. Like, what does Jesus need to do at this point, right? These are people that watched him raise from the dead. They're about to watch him ascend to heaven, and there's some guy that's like, nah, I don't know. I'm not so sure about this Jesus guy. Um, Sorry, that's just a side note. Uh, Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, this is what we do. This is Jesus's, it's called the Great Commission. If you're going to tell somebody the most important thing, like the last words that you give are the most important thing you say, right? On on people's deathbeds, they tell you really important things. They tell you significant things. They, They ask you, like, this is what I need you to do, or I'm so thankful for you for this. They don't normally like, eh, I think the Reds aren't gonna be that good this year, right? That's not the conversation. We talk about what really matters. Um, So he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And they listened to Jesus together. And they went out and they did this. They started making disciples. There's three things that Jesus says in there. He says, I want you to train. I want you to baptize. And I want you to instruct. Train baptize and instruct. And the Great Commission was not just for those disciples, it's for all of us. This is what Jesus is asking us to do. Train, baptize, and instruct. Now, what we've narrowed that down to in our culture is this. Show up, tithe, and maybe if you're really holy, volunteer. Right? That's the description of most Christians. I, I, I belong to this church. Why do you belong to this church? Because I show up. What do you do there? Well, sometimes I give some of my money. 
And if you're really holy, like the super, super holy people are volunteering with our junior high kids right now. Like that's, that's super, that's like the super holiness quotient is if you will work with junior high children because they're the worst, right? They're the absolute, <laughs> absolute worst. Um, so we have these three things and, and, and the consequences of us not living in to train, baptize, and instruct, but instead doing show up, tithe, and volunteer is huge for the American church. It means that we're dependent on a few people to do all the work of the church. It means that when I, when I want my friend who doesn't know Jesus to know Jesus, what do I have to do? I got to bring him to the professional. I got to bring him on Sunday morning. I got to bring, I, I got to have him listen to the podcast. Instead of this idea that I actually could talk to them about Jesus. I could actually share my faith. I, I could share with them what I've experienced in my life. I could teach them. I could train them. I could do all of these things. The thing that Jesus asks us to do is not, hey, guys, this is what I want you all to do. Disciples, listen to me. I'm going to heaven. I've led you for three years. I rose from the dead. I proved how powerful I am. Here's what I want you to do. Get a building. Get as many people as you can be there on Sunday mornings. Sing some songs. Have some guy who knows a lot about Leviticus stand up and talk. And then everybody go home. That is not the call of the church. That's the Americanized version of the church. What we're called to do is to train, to baptize, and to instruct. To go. To go. Go means like doing something. To go and to make disciples. Of all the nations, he says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so he starts at home and said, here's what's going to happen. This is going to grow and expand. We're going to start in Jerusalem. And as we start taking Jerusalem, as we start taking ground in Jerusalem, we're going to move to Judea. And then we're going to move out and we're going to move out and we're going to grow. That's the strategy. That's what we're called to. Luke 24 says this, same story. It says, when we led them to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And they worshiped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And here's what we've seen. All the resurrection stories until now have been about fear. We talked about that a few weeks ago. They're all about, I'm a little afraid. I'm afraid of what's next. I'm afraid of what God's called me to do. I'm afraid because this dude just rose from the dead. I'm afraid of all of these things. And what we see now is Jesus gives them their instructions and the fear moves to joy. It's joy that is bursting off of the pages of Luke. It's joy of a life that is full and abundant and good. I, I want you to understand that if you're living into the show up, tithe, volunteer model of church, you're never gonna experience the full and abundant life that God has called you to. You're going to always feel like this isn't what I thought it was going to be. This life with Jesus, this relationship with Christ, it's not what I hoped it would be. I feel like there's got to be more. I read the stories of Scripture, and I look at my own life, and I feel like this is, there's a disconnect. There is more. There is this beauty in laying down our lives before Christ and saying, you're in charge. And I don't know what's going to happen this week. I don't know where you're going to lead me. I don't know where you're going to call me, but I'm going to bow in prayer every single day and I'm going to say, this day belongs to you, Jesus. And so what adventure do you want, want to lead me on? Who are the people that you want me to love? What's the way you want me to serve? How, who, who am I supposed to bless? And, and we have eyes to see what God is doing all around us. And imagine what that does to, for communities. 
when all of us put our eyes on that says, I just want to bless, I just want to serve, I just want to love, I just want to care. It's not just the pastor's responsibility to do those things. It's all of our responsibility. Suddenly, communities get transformed. Suddenly, schools start to be radically changed. Suddenly, neighborhoods start to look differently. It's because there's an army of God's people who are all just saying, Lord, show me where you want me to go and I'll follow. Powerful, amazing things begin to happen. Joy bursts out of our life. Sarah and I went on a marriage retreat once, uh, and, and uh, somebody called us. Uh, we were living in Louisville, Kentucky at the time, and they said to us this. They said, hey, it's free, which caught our attention, right? Any, 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 if you're a pastor, you'd understand that. Uh, it's free, and it's at the beach, which are two code words for Sarah and I that mean we're going. Um, and so we're doing a marriage retreat, free at the beach, and we're like, we're in, we're in, we're going. And we did this marriage retreat, and we're hanging out, and, and at the end of this retreat, they had what they called just like a ministry time, where people kind of did some prophetic prayers and kind of prayed over you and, and just shared some things. And this guy comes up to us and says, I've got something I want to pray for you about, and, and do you mind if I share a picture that God gave me of like what's going on in your family? And we're like, oh, okay, we just were here for the free beach thing, but that's fine too. Uh, and... Uh, and he puts his hand on our shoulders. He starts praying and he says, uh, so I get a picture of you guys in a car and you're driving into the ocean and water is like coming up into the car and you keep driving, like you keep going forward and water's filling up and it like gets to your waist and you're starting to freak out but you still have your foot on the gas but you're banging to get out of the car and I was starting to think like, what kind of marriage retreat is this? Like this is... <laughs> And he said, but you keep going. And he said this, and, and at the time, Sarah and I were at this place where ministry was really, really difficult. It was really, really hard. And we were starting to ask questions like, I don't know that we can do this. I don't know that we're good enough for this. I don't know that we're capable of leading these people. I don't know if we have the skills to do this. I don't, I don't know. And we were scared and afraid and nervous and didn't know what was next. And the guy says to us, what you think is gonna kill you is really gonna give you life. And we just like burst into tears in that moment because we realized that there is this full, abundant, good life that Jesus calls us to, but it doesn't come for free. We've gotta take the first step. We've gotta step into it. We've got to take responsibility for our own lives. We've got to trust that God is moving and working and lean into all of these things because some of you out there right now, you're inactive because you're afraid. You know that God's calling you to something. You know that he's been leading you somewhere. You know that he's been stirring your heart towards a people or a person or a place or a mission or a thing, but you're terrified of, what if I, don't, what if I do it wrong? What if I don't do it right? What if I, and there's all the what if I questions in your mind, and that's the fear that captivated the disciples until Jesus said to them, go. And all of a sudden, bursting out of joy, they stepped into what they thought was gonna kill them, and it really gave them life. And they started to experience the fullness and the goodness of a relationship with God. John chapter 20, verse 21, uh, uh, Jesus shows up in the room and he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent you, I am sending you. This is his great commission at that time. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That seems weird for us. It feels like he needs a breath mint or something like that or like an awkward, 
Like, uh, remember Lance Stevenson blowing on LeBron James's ear in the championship game? Do you basketball fans, all two of you, understand that one? Uh, that, that's not what he's talking about. This is, this is pointing back to creation. God is the one who breathed life into us. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to breathe life into you. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, Thomas, they said, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails are and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Verse 29, it says, then Jesus said to him, because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Thomas is like, he's one of those doubters. He's like, I don't know. I'm not gonna believe it till I see it. This seems a little far-fetched. And, and let me be honest, I'm 100% sure there are those of you in this room today who are like, come on, Ben, you're talking about somebody rising from the dead? Come on, Ben, you're talking about this like scary life that you're calling me to live, that I, there might be a God that calls me to do something or I listen to him, but I'm not quite sure who, whether that's God that spoke or just the burrito I had for lunch. Like, I, I don't know what all is going on here. And I want you to know if that's you, you're in good company. Jesus didn't meet Thomas's doubts with anger, with frustration. He didn't tell him how to manage a one-three-one zone, give him a guilt trip about what he's supposed to do and say, I know more than you, so get good with it. He said, you're invited. Come on. And, and, and here's the thing that I would say to anybody in this room that has doubts. Just explore your doubts. Like I, I don't have like some coercion or manipulation or anything that I have to do because I actually believe that God does the work when we explore our doubts. I believe that when we come humbly to him and say, Lord, I don't get this, I don't understand this, I'm confused about this, I'm not sure what this holds for me, uh, I, I don't know whether I have a relationship with you right now or not. If we come humbly, he meets us there. And so humbly explore your doubts. A lot of times what we want is we want the, we want the person across the table to prove to us their beliefs and, and we want them to really explore their beliefs and really think about what they believe and really dive in and study and, and understand what you believe, but we don't want to do the same thing with our doubts. Explore your doubts. Find somebody who's, who looks like Jesus to you. Find somebody who seems to understand some of this stuff and say, hey, could you help me understand this? I don't get this, or I'm confused by this, or this frustrates me, or, or, or I, don't, I don't believe this part, but I believe this part, and would you help me? And just see what happens. Paul said that Jesus appeared to 500 people. And out of all of those 500 people, I want you to know something very clearly. There was not one of those persons that was a resurrection expert. There was not one of those people who said, oh, I've been through all of this before, with the last Savior, let me tell you what we're supposed to do. They were all figuring it out on the road. They were all driving into the water, terrified of what's next, but trusting that God was good. And the same thing is the posture for us. The resurrection, guys, it's an open door. There's no rank or privilege. There's no experts. We're just fellow travelers. That's why we say the church is a family. Because we're called to inhabit what, what, what family is supposed to be. We're a family the way family is supposed to be, right? Where we're brothers and sisters who care for each other, love each other, and who serve a good father. That's who we are. And if you're doubting today, there's good news because you're not alone. If you're confused about what's next, there's good news 
because there's a bunch of us in this room who are confused about what's next. If you're a little fearful, there's good news because even Peter and John were fearful. If you're worried about what step you take or you're worried you won't be good enough or you're worried you don't know enough, then you're in good company because there's no perfect people in this room. If you're afraid of, of, that you might say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, then you're in good company because I'm afraid of that every single week. But what we do is we just say, Lord, here's my life. It's all I got. The only thing I have to offer him that's not, that's not his already is my life. And so what do you want to do with it? What does it look like for me to serve you and to follow you? And every single week, we gather together on Sundays so that we can awaken dreams to lean into in the week. Guys, this, we, my, my greatest hope for us is that we're a seven-day-a-week operation. <laughs> that Sundays become the rallying cry for the week. That we gather together on Sundays not to, for Sunday to be the thing, but for the rest of the week to be the thing so that we can go so that we can talk to each other on Sundays and say, hey, pray for me. I did this thing this week that it was crazy and I talked to my neighbor about this and it didn't go well and so I need your prayer. I need, what should I do in this situation? How do I manage this? What do I do here? That's when family really starts to happen. So the band's gonna come and what we do every single week is, is we, we really believe that church is pretty simple. Um, we don't have any laser lights. Um, we, we, we don't, we, we've, yet, we've yet to get the smoke machine that Tyler's been asking for. No, I'm just kidding. Um, we, we, we just kind of believe that when we gather together and we sing and we open up the Bible, that good things happen and that God shows up. And so every single week, we take communion together as a family. We just come to the table. There's the, there's the bread and the juice, which represents the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And we come corporately together. And, and what we've been doing since we started this series is just trying to find somebody else in the room to pray for. Um, and here's the rules. Don't be weird. Um, that's, the, that's the only rule we have in this. But grab, like, your family and pray for them. Grab each other and grab a friend that came with you and say, how can I pray for you? And we just take a few minutes and we just quietly reflect on what we've heard. We quietly reflect on what God's been saying to us and we just pray for one another. And so we're gonna enter into that right now. We're gonna come and we're gonna take communion. There's a table here in the front and there's a table in the back. And then if you wanna pray with somebody, pray with somebody. If you don't wanna pray with somebody, don't pray with somebody. But let's gather together as a family and let's say like this week, guys, of all weeks, this week matters to us. <laughs> It's the week where we actually reflect on the greatness of Jesus. It's the week that we reflect on the goodness of our Lord. It's, it's our victory week, right? This is V-Day for us. It's the week where we look at the world and we say, the world, you've thrown a lot at us this year. And there's a lot of difficult things that we've walked through. And my family's not where I want it to be and not where I hoped it would be. And things are going bad. But here's what I know. I know that in this world there may be trouble, but take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. I know that even death couldn't stop him. And so it can't stop him in us. It can't stop him in me. It can't stop him in my family. And so we learn how to live in victory. And if I get going more, I'm going to preach the sermon I'm going to preach next week. Because <laughs> Sunday we're coming to talk about victory, guys. We're coming to talk about this is our day. This is the day where our God says, what's up, world? I'm trustworthy, and I'm good, 
and I'm powerful and I'm strong and I'm with you and I wanna be with you. And so today, let's come to the table. Let's know that God meets us in reality. So whatever we're carrying, whatever we're walking with, he wants us to bring it to us. He already knows about it. So let's humbly come to the table. Father God, we thank you that you have called every single one of us and there's no application process for it. That you have invited every single one of us into your mission, not because we're good, but because you're good. We thank you that you have told us that when we go, you will give us authority and power and strength. We thank you that you've told us that when we live as a family, amazing things happen. We thank you that you've told us that blessing others and serving others and sacrificing for others is the best way to live. And so we just simply want to say to you at the end of the service today that we trust you. That we believe that your way is the best way. And that we want to become the family that you've called us to. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to move and to work and to speak, to challenge us, to call us out of inaction, to call us out of fear, to call us out of complacency, to call us out of insecurity, and to call us to the places that you've called us to go. And so we just simply say, speak, Lord, for now your servants are listening. It's in your name we pray. Amen.